Stephanie McNeil, and I am so excited to be here today with the lovely and talented Sylvia Obel. Sylvia, welcome back to AM2DM. You haven't been on the show in a while, right? Right, and I'm so excited to be back. I've been hosting a little show called Hella Opinions, but you know, uh, we're on hiatus right now, so I'm excited to be able to come back and play with the AM2DM fam. I feel like a lot of our fans here on AM2DM watch your show and love your show, but for those of you who haven't seen it, you'll get another chance. It is coming back. We can give you that news exclusively here on AM2DM. <laughs> we don't have any more details that we can share just yet, but the show is coming back, right? Yes, I still have hella opinions to give about hella things, so stay tuned. Yeah, it's going to be great. Well, we're so excited to have you here today. Thanks, Steph. So let's start our day with some Twitter drama. Can somebody explain to me how Azalea Banks is still managing to have Twitter beefs in the year of our Lord 2018? Isn't she tired? When, and when did she get back on Twitter? No one has time for this. I just, uh, <laughs> anyway, so what happened was Azalea decided to come for Lana Del Rey for calling out Kanye West supporting Trump. It's a lot of characters. I don't know why anybody would do this, but here's what Azalea said to Lana. Wow, okay, Lana, this would be cute if you were consistent with your outrage and refused to collab with ASAP Rocky, who has physically assaulted women too. To me, this just looks like the typical white woman using a weakened target to pretend to be an ally. Okay, I'm gonna do Lana's response in my best Lana Del Rey please, voice. Please, she responded please. saying, you know the Addy. Pull up my time. Say it to my face. But I, if I were you, I wouldn't. What you, was that good? Was that good? It was great, because I feel like it's like shady but calm, and I'm just like, I didn't know Alana was I didn't know Alana was built like this. I mean, yeah, Lana is like the summertime sadness, like Coachella, <laughs> flower crowd type of person. I did not know that she would say pull up to my Addy. I didn't even know she knew what pull up meant. But I Lana know. was like, Lana had time. Lana had time today or yesterday, technically. So am I reading this correctly that she's basically asking Azalea to fight her at her house? I mean, she was just saying, if you got an issue, pull up. You know what I mean? Like, she's like, oh, you know where I live, you know what's going on. Because I really don't understand why Azalea decided, like, a whole week later to come at her about these comments when Kanye clearly, like, it's like, it's just, it doesn't make sense. And then she wants to put race into it. And I hate when people use real racist, like, issues to support their dumb, like, beats. Like, it's like, this is not, yet, like, to bring the whole white woman attacking the black man into it, that happens a lot, but, like, in this case, this was not the time, Azalea. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, defending Kanye right now is probably but not why? the best choice. Why would you, but then, you know, they're two birds, birds of feather flock together. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, Sam Stryker on BuzzFeed has a great post that breaks all of this down for us. Yes. So if you want more info on the drama, read it. But if that wasn't enough drama for you today, here's a TBT. Travell Anderson tweeted, they are actually making a movie out of that 2015 Twitter thread about the stripper, her pimp, and friend. Yes, the Zola movie is happening. It's being made by indie studio A24, which just announced Taylor Page has been cast in the lead role. So from hit the floor to hit the pole <laughs> is what sis is about to do. I really think this is either going to be like an amazing like Oscar bait film or it's going to be like Spring Breakers. Just like a total train wreck. I think that, you know, maybe at least somebody can get a BT award out of this. I just think it's so amazing that this is like the first movie that um, an idea from Twitter got made from. Like, this was a Twitter thread. It kind of started the whole, let me tell you a story in like 100 tweets type thing. And I think it's really 
interesting that they're really making this a feature film. And I wonder how what Zola's role is in this, actually, behind the scenes. Yeah, like, is she getting, like, an executive producer credit or something? We have no idea. I don't know, but listen, people are about to start pitching scripts on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very interested. I would love to see who's, pay, who's playing, I think the pimp's name was, like, Jay or something. Yeah, who's playing Jay? Who's, who's playing, playing Jay? Jess? Jess? Who's playing Jess? <laughs> I've been picturing, like, a Juno Temple kind of, like, sprite <laughs> character. But I don't know. Okay, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Do you think the Zola movie will actually be good? Will you see it? Who do you want to see casting it, let us know using the hashtag and to DM. Oh, I'm going. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, on to the news of the day. Here's a tweet from the Weather Channel. Hurricane Michael is just hours away from being a catastrophic, unprecedented Florida panhandle, Big Bend, category four landfall. Last chance to get to a safe place if told to evacuate. No long-term resident of the area has ever experienced a hurricane this intense. This hurricane intensified overnight, and now officials are begging residents to get out if they still can. BuzzFeed News science reporter Zara Hirji joins us now. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, Zara, good to see you again. So when I was reading the news this morning, something that struck me is it feels like in contrast to Hurricane Florence, which the whole week leading up to it, everyone was talking about, everyone was bidding warnings out to get out and evacuate. Michael seems to just kind of come out of nowhere. So is that the nature of the storm or has the media been ignoring this storm because of everything else that's been going on? So it's a little bit of both. Uh, I would say state officials have been watching this storm as it's been moving through the Gulf of Mexico since late last week and the governor has been issuing warnings and notifications since over the weekend. But Florence, you know, Florence was a storm that intensified heavily in the days leading up to its approach to North Carolina. And it was a very slow moving storm. And by the time it actually made landfall, it had decreased pretty quickly intensity. And then it just hunkered down and lingered on the coast. So it had a slow approach. And then it just sat there on North Carolina's coast for days, giving residents even more time to kind of get out because it just took so long for it to get into the state. Now, the difference with Michael is it was just a tropical cyclone or just a tropical storm. It wasn't even a hurricane until midday Monday, and it's been very quickly intensifying and moving pretty rapidly as it approached the coast. And so now it's it's not only uh, in reached the intensity of a Category 4 storm, but it's done that right before it made landfall um, and, you know, the day of. And that's just a pretty fast timeline. Yeah, that's how, that, so that seems to be what makes it so dangerous. But what do you think, the what does the path look like? Is this the only area that's going to be affected or should other states nearby prepare as well? Yeah, so the brunt of the storm is certainly going to hit Florida and this Big Bend panhandle region. But as I said, as it's different from Florence, is it is moving faster. So areas pretty far inland of northern Florida and then into southeastern Georgia and even into South Carolina could see hurricane force winds over the next couple of days. And 
kind of going back to that Weather Channel tweet that you said, I spoke with Tim Oram, a meteorologist at the National Hurricane Center this morning, and really do want to reinforce that he was saying this area, this panhandle region that this hurricane is making landfall on, has never seen a Category 4 storm in the about uh, over 100 years that they've been monitoring these storms. In fact, the last time they saw a Category 3 storm was... 1917. So it's been a long time and the wind threat is just going to be enormous. We're talking about 145 miles of maximum sustained winds. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's pretty crazy that this area of Florida, which is what we associate with getting hurricanes all the time, this is a once in a lifetime storm for them. I was reading all of the tweets and just feeling so worried for all of the residents who it seems like this might have snuck up on. So what are the evacuation orders look like and what should residents do if they were kind of caught off guard by this storm? Yeah, so, I mean, if you're right in the immediate area of landfall, the goal is that you've already left or you've made it to a structure that you're safe and you can hunker down in. Um, if you have decided to hunker down, the goal is that you have supplies to last you a while because with such high winds, there's a really strong likelihood that this will knock down power lines or knock down trees that will knock down power lines. And, you know, I've been told that residents could expect not having power for at least a week. Um, but I think a lot of people were caught off guard just because it intensified so quickly. Um, the governor has issued many evacuations for multiple counties that are right along the coast, and then there were additional voluntary evacuations. But I have to imagine that's going to continue further inland as the storm progresses. And it's not just on the coast where y'all have these really high winds and storm surge, but you know, I was talking about how the storm surge could actually carry essentially 20 miles inland along rivers. And so if you're living along a river, um, you should probably also be evacuating. And I think those are the types of warnings that also were going out. Um, but the meteorologist was telling me, you know, if you're in southern Georgia or South Carolina, today is the day that you should also be making your preparations. Thank you so much, Sarah. I hope everybody in those areas watching is getting the safety. Yeah, me too. Here's a tweet from entertainment reporter Alana Bennett. Um, as part of BuzzFeed's What Now series, I wrote about three shows for, for whom the Weinstein exposés and Me Too movement made the writers recalibrate and recontextualize their own characters. Alana joins us now. Good morning, Alana. Hi. A lot of shows tackled sexual harassment and assault this year. What made you choose to highlight Grey's Anatomy, Younger, and The Good Fight in particular in your story? Well, these are three very different shows uh, that all, when everything happened, when the Weinstein stories came out last year, really sat down and took a hard look at their characters. And a lot, all three of them pivoted in some way to reflect what was going on in three very different ways. So which out of these three mirrored wine, the Weinstein situation the most in their storyline? I would say Grey's Anatomy probably got the closest in that they really wanted to show through this kind of medical um, legacy foundation, the Harper Avery Foundation that had been big in the show for many, many seasons. They wanted to show what it looked like when 
the leader of that foundation was found to have been a serial harasser, what that looks like when it trickles down and kind of takes down an institution and how the people who were not um, actually harassing were not actually harassers themselves, but, you know, were maybe complicit or maybe even just didn't know how they react to that and how they make things right. So I think that they did the the closest to looking at what was going on overall with the Weinstein story. Mm. Were there any other shows that you didn't get to write about that you feel also did this well as far as um, implementing the Me Too movement in their storylines? Yeah, there are two. One is one that has not premiered yet. It premieres this coming Sunday. Charmed kind of pivoted their entire show to be around uh, Me Too. It starts with the line with a line that's something like, "This isn't a witch hunt; it's a reckoning." Uh, and they bring they re- they literally make harassers and uh, assaulters demons, and they fight them with their powers in a way that is very cathartic. And the other is BoJack Horseman, which. Um, even though their characters are anthropomorphic horses, they deal with it in a kind of a more, um, in, a, in a darker way in that they're looking at the ways that people get away with things. Um, and they just kind of formed their entire season around it in that Bojack himself is, is reckoning with what he has done and the people around him are reckoning with things that he has done. And also they have a, um, a sex robot literally becomes a TV executive, the president of a TV network. So there's a lot of shows that have done it in really interesting ways. That is so interesting. In reading all of these stories with this new series and talking to so many reporters about this, it's definitely encouraging to see that this movement is making this huge impact on TV. But obviously the concern is that this is a trend, this is only going to happen for a season or so. So what do you think? Do you think this is something that TV and entertainment is going to continue to reckon with and talk about? Or do you think once the season's over, everyone's just going to kind of move on? I think that it will be something we continue to see with uh, Glow. Glow also did a harassment storyline this past season, and they had written that before any of the stories had broken. Um, So I think that it was already on people's minds. I think it's like in real life with these stories, they're going to go in and out. But I think people have always been thinking about them and they will continue to think about them. And as the sort of the conversation progresses, the, the way that we deal with them and reflect them in our stories will also shift but I don't think they'll go away. It's definitely an encouraging trend to see so many people tackling these topics. So we hope it does continue, as you said. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you. Okay, now it's time for Fire Tweets. Are you ready, Sylvia? I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's pull out these buttons. Fire! Fire! Got this hot change. Okay, do you ready? remember how to do this? You all set? Yes, it's coming back to me. I got it. Okay, you ready? Okay, this is from Samir. Is your name Liam? Liam Neeson? Yeah? Horse. LOL, I know you. We work together on a different movie. Liam Neeson, does anyone else hear this horse talking to me? Okay, so (laughs) our producers had to explain this one to us. Apparently, Liam Neeson said in an interview that he was working on a movie and he realized he had worked with this horse before on another film and he felt like the horse remembered him and was like, nicer to him and like knew who he was. was. He felt recognized, like the horse recognized him, which is like a sweet. That is so cute. Sweet, weird, you know, thing to do. But you know, hey, I'm people. I'm all for it. Horses are really smart, so you never know. Okay, ready? Mm -hmm. Next tweet up from Anna. 
Do you think Yo-Yo Ma ever answers the phone like, Chillo? LOL. <laughs> Chillo. Chillo. I mean, I think he does. I don't like to think he does. I think it's funny. Yeah. But it, <laughs> all right. AC. I hit it. There we go. <laughs> I got hit it with intention. Yeah. <laughs> what idiot called it a randomized clinical trial controlled with placebo and not a trick or treatment? <laughs> that is very nerdy, but very funny. AC. I enjoy that a lot. People, you know, I feel like corny Twitter is really like coming out strong and trying to put happiness back on that awful site that it's Corny, <laughs> Halloween moment. Twitter, fall Twitter, all for it. All for it. Okay, next tweet from Mr. George. I'll straight up eat a club sandwich at a cottage and a cottage cheese at the club. I really don't give a shit anymore. Okay, eating cottage cheese at a club sounds absolutely disgusting. I do not co-sign this, Mr. George. Eating cottage cheese, period. Yeah. Okay. Cottage cheese is one of those things that like, I eat, I like buy it, and I never actually eat it. Because I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be healthy, whatever. But no, never going to do it. All right, ready for the tweet of the day? Yep. Woo! This is from Sarah Valentine. Everyone hates millennials until it's time to convert a PDF into a Word document. Blue. Hell yeah! <laughs> We got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Sorry, old people. <laughs> Patrick, this is for you. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be, I'll be able to come back after that one. I know. Patrick is done. <laughs> He's done behind, back behind the scenes. Okay, that's it for Fire Tweets. Up next, we're going live from the district. And later in the show, Isaac and Saeed will announce the finalists for the National Book Awards. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent, Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini. Hi, friends. Hey, Tarini. Okay, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News World Editor Miriam Elder. Pretty old school for the Nikki Haley resignation to carry the news cycle through the day, rather than be eclipsed by like 10 other things, as has been the way of the world of late. True. Yeah, I mean, old school <laughs> is one way to put it. <laughs> Okay, so Trini, the Nikki Haley news broke yesterday during the show, so we've had a full news cycle of digesting the information. Do we have any better sense now of why she is leaving? Right, it's shocking that we're still talking about Nikki Haley, but uh, we do now know a little bit more about her decision-making uh, process, and it seems clear that she wanted to leave on her own terms, uh, which, as we know, can be hard in the Trump administration. So she saw a good time to leave and decided to act on it. Why does, why do you, does this departure seem more amicable than the other ones? Does the distance have something to do with it? I think that could definitely be a part of it, but like I said, she it was her decision. She decided when she had to go, so it definitely seemed more sort of di diplomatic in that Oval Office meeting that we saw yesterday. But I think it's also important to remember that this relationship wasn't always, you know, warm and fuzzy like we saw. There was it was a complicated relationship, and they did have disagreements on foreign policy issues. But also, the president often saw Nikki Haley as a potential threat because he saw her as this ambitious woman who could potentially challenge him uh, in 2020. Yeah, I think one of the first takes I saw out of the news was that, oh, she must be wanting to run in 2020. But there was a lot of other, a lot of other speculation out there. One theory that I saw, which kind of makes a lot of sense to me, was that 
Lindsey Graham is vying for a post in the Trump administration, and then Nikki Haley wants to run for Graham's Senate seat in South Carolina, where she was the governor. What do you think of that theory? Do you think there's another theory? Do you think that she, she really doesn't know what she's going to do next, which I don't know about that. <laughs> You're right. So there were a lot of conspiracy theories floating around on Twitter yesterday. One of them was that Lindsey Graham would want to be attorney general and then Nikki Haley could run for his seat. Lindsey Graham told The Washington Post yesterday that he's not interested in being attorney general. He likes being a senator. And I think people who are close to Nikki Haley kind of pointed out that they don't really see her as wanting to be one of a, a 100 senators. You know, this is someone who's been a governor of a state. She, uh, she's been UN secretary now. Um, and so I think she she has loftier political ambitions than, than wanting to be the senator from South Carolina. So, so we'll have to see. But uh, for now, it seems that she wants to go to the private sector and potentially make some money. Can't well, falter for that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, making money. But um, who are the front runners to replace her, do you think? Ivanka, I saw, tweeted saying, not her. She said, not it, not I. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we, the, the president said yesterday that he has five people on his short list. One of the uh, someone who's been talked about a lot is Dina Powell. She was she was in his administration, um, you know, early on and, and ended up leaving last year. He you know, when she left, he immediately wanted to rehire her. So he thinks this would be a good position for her. There was also this um, picture that Nikki Haley tweeted of her uh, and her husband on this boat with Dina Powell and her fiance. So that's definitely a sparked some speculation. Um, there's also the current ambassador to Germany, who would be a much more controversial pick, uh, Rick Grinnell, who's been talked about. He is, um, you know, good friends with uh, the Trump family. Um, so his name has been floated. But the president said yesterday he would uh, prefer uh, for Grinnell to stay in Germany. So we're still trying to find out who these, who some of these other five people on this list are. But for now, those are the, the big names. OK, got it. Well, let's move on to this tweet from Bloomberg's Jennifer Epstein, who said, no subtlety from Trump in his op-ed as he claims the truth is that centrist Democratic Party is dead. That the centrist Democratic Party is dead. The new Democrats are radical socialists who want to model America's economy after Venezuela. That was a journey. Tari, why is Trump penning an op-ed in USA Today? I think the simple answer is that the midterm elections are less than a month away, and he is trying to reach his supporters wherever he can, whether that's through the, the million rallies he's been having every day or, you know, through that op-ed. What do you think about the USA Today publishing this? Because we've had a lot of op-eds that have made the news recently, right? We had Kavanaugh in the Wall Street Journal. We had the anonymous New York Times op-ed. Does him picking the USA Today, does that say anything to you? I think it's very telling. I mean, he is trying to reach his supporters where they they would read such a thing. So, uh, you know, the, the states where we were seeing really close Senate uh, races are, uh, you know, in states like Montana, uh, sort of, you know, the, the heartland races, if you will. So that's the USA Today is um, is probably the best avenue as opposed to The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal, um, you know, and as opposed to Brett Kavanaugh, who was trying to reach sort of the more moderate Republicans and especially those swing potential swing senators who uh, were going to be deciding on his confirmation, he chose to go with the Wall Street Journal. So there is sort of a strategic decision that goes into picking which newspaper for these op-eds. Mm. 
And why do you think he chose to focus on the healthcare debate? So healthcare has become a big issue on both sides. Democrats have been talking about it uh, for the past year. They've really been uh, focusing a lot on it. They are not on it. They've been doing a lot of um, town halls, using that message in, in ads. And I think uh, Republicans had been trying to focus more on the economy and and the the tax bill that they passed. But uh, in the last few months, we've also seen them shift their focus and talk about other things. And I think they're trying to respond to the Democratic attacks attacks on them on healthcare uh, by. Kind of saying that, uh, like you said, there aren't any centrist Democrats left, and um, in the states where we're seeing these tough races, uh, Democrats are trying to say that they're, you know, uh, they have this good relationship with Trump, even though they're Democrats, that they can work across the aisle. And he's basically trying to say that that doesn't exist. These are the whole party has shifted to the left, and you know, if you think you're voting for a moderate centrist Democrat, then you're wrong. Vote Republican instead is basically the message that. He's trying to to give out using healthcare. It's a very strong message. I guess we'll see what happens with the midterms if that has any impact. Thank you so much, Trini. I keep saying they need a shade room for. Politics. Thanks for having me. They really do. <laughs> I, I can't keep that, that. I feel they like need that a shade room. Be, that would be a very entertaining <laughs> website. I guess that's just like Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Up uh. next, Saeed and Isaac announced the National Book Awards finalists. So stay tuned. Welcome back to AM to DM, and welcome to award season. Yes, we are so excited, a little nervous to be honest, because we are about to announce the finalists for, frankly, our favorite honor of the year, the National Book Awards. And here to help us, we're joined by Lisa Lucas, the executive director of the National Book Foundation and an all-around fantastic person. Lisa, oh. thanks for joining us Thank this morning. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to do this. This is our favorite time of the year. We're, yeah. we're really excited to have you here. So walk us through. If there's yeah. someone that doesn't know the National Book Award, shame on them, uh, what happens? All right, so we think it's like the biggest night in books. On November 14th, we're going to have the National Book Award ceremony and unveil a winner in each of five categories. Okay. Um, and so all year long, we work on this. So the judges get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, and they work all year long to narrow it down mm. to a long list. Okay. And so we've got 10 books in each category, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, young people's literature, and translated literature. Which is a new category Brand this new. year, correct? Brand new. All right, mm -hmm. all right. And then we get our finalist list, and those lists are whittled down to five, and that's what we're gonna announce today. Okay, so yeah. So what we're seeing here is not just like the work of, of the writers and editors and publishers themselves, but so many judges mm -hmm. and, and your own team members to get from such a huge number down to five in each category. Yeah, Do we know how many, how many books are we talking here? Uh, we've got 25 with? books. No, but that you start with. Oh, about 1,600. 1,600 books. books. And it's just the judges. We stay out of it. We are wow. like not a part of the decision-making process. Wow. We just facilitate getting it done. All right, Love well, it. let's get to it. I can't wait anymore, Lisa. You want to start us off? No, here we go. Here are the finalists for Young People's Literature. Elizabeth Acevedo, The Poet X. M.T. Anderson and Eugene Yelchin for The Assassination of Brangwain Spurge. Leslie Connor for The Truth as Told by Mason Buttle. Christopher Paul Curtis for The Journey of Little Charlie. And Jarrett J. Krasaska for Hey Kiddo. Congratulations yeah. to all the finalists. I love it, YA. Oh my gosh, yeah. Now, young people's literature, I have to admit, it's like summer my middle favorite grade. category. It's, it's, and some of my favorite, absolutely. Uh, all right, now here's the new one, right? The newest category. Here are the finalists for translated literature. Nagar Javadi, Disoriental, translated by Tina Cover. Han Ershtevik, Love, translated by Martin Aiken. Domenico Starnone, Trick, translated by Jumpa Lahiri. 
Yoko Tawada, The Emissary, translated by Margaret Mitsutani. Olga Tokarchuk, Flights, translated by Jennifer Croft. Such an exciting thing to have this Incredible. category, to have translated work here uh, nominated for the National Book Award is so meaningful. And the translators, our first group ever. Yeah, it's so it. fantastic. Thrilling. We're okay. thrilled. Okay, I gotta be a little biased, guys. Uh -huh. Translation's wonderful. It is! But we have to talk about poetry. And you're oh, a poet. <laughs> oh, here comes a poet. Here comes a here poet. Here comes a poet. Here are the finalists for poetry. Ray Armantrout, Wobble. Terrence Hayes, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. Diana Coy Wynn, Ghost of. Justin Philip Reed, Indecency. Jenny Se, I Level. Ah! Yeah? Incredible. You this is so exciting. Terrence Hayes has been on the show. Terrence Hayes, of course, was on the show. I got to interview him about American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, and so that is cool. A stunning collection. He's also been a National Book Award winner. Okay. Oh! So he's he's right. back in the game. He's, yeah, he's back, back with uh, us. Up for a repeat. Mm -hmm. I love and it. And it's just a tremendous list. They're really varied. They're from, you know, they're writing from all different styles, and it's just a great list. It's been a thrill to read them. Exciting. Like, I know Justin Philip Reed. This is his debut poetry collection. That's, so what I, that's that another range. thing that I love about the National Book Award is that you can get people so late in their career, or so early in the career, or in the middle of their career, mm -hmm. and, like, to recognize great literature, it's just fantastic. Hello. Congrats to all of you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, now, here are the finalists. Here are the big boys. Oh. Here are the big boys. Oh. Here are the finalists for nonfiction. Colin G. Calloway, The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Americans, and The Birth of the Nation. Victoria Johnson, American Eden, David Hosack, Botany, and Medicine in the Garden of the Early Republic. Sarah Smarsh, Heartland, A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth. Jeffrey C. Stewart, The New Negro, The Life of Alan Locke. Adam Winkler, we the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Woohoo! Mm -hmm. And by big boys, you mean literally big boys. Big. Yeah, I mean, they are heavy hitters, books. but they are also, <laughs> look at that stack. Yeah. It is, it is. You don't want to catch They're me in a fight all. if I've got a copy of the new Negro in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bam! Yeah, incredible. So, so tell us a little bit about these. Like, who do we got in there? You know, so, I mean, there's so many different. You have a definitive biography. You have a memoir that's also a social critique. You mm. have a debut, Sarah Smarsh. Um, you have this really comprehensive history of how corporations came to be treated as people in America. Um, I always call this the like how to win Jeopardy category. <laughs> right? So if you Learn read them all, you automatically become yeah. much smarter. Yeah, um, and absolutely. It, they're always so unexpected. They're things that I didn't know that I needed to read every year. Every year it's something that I didn't know I needed to read, and every year I become like a bigger human being. That's one of the things I, I love about nonfiction because it's such a broad spectrum. Like you were saying, it goes from memoir to very, very deep historical reads. It's amazing. And again, also I want to make space here. All the judges work so hard, but I feel like nonfiction, as you know, it's biography. It's 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 cultural criticism. Mm -hmm. It's memoir. A, a lot of books, and many of them huge. So yeah. the judges had to do a lot of reading. They work hard. The nonfiction judges really that's where you get your muscles. earned their the wins. Heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, heavy lifting. And we're super grateful to them. We're grateful to all the judges, but I definitely feel like the 546 books that the nonfiction judges had arrive in crates to their homes was really a big ask. Ooh, I like that you slid that 546 in there. That was right. good. That is a lot. Well, friends, last but certainly not least, here are the finalists for fiction. Ooh. Jamel Brinkley, A Lucky Man. Lauren Groff, Florida. Brandon Hobson, Where the Dead Sit Talking. Rebecca Mackay, The Great Believers. Sigrid Nunez, The Friend. 
I'm so excited. I'm so I, love I can all feel, of, I I can love feel you vibrating with excitement. This is such a great fix. I love list. how excited you were about uh, I'm it. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> think, I just think it's really well put together. And that's the thing about the National Book Awards is you get so excited when you see books that you yourself loved mm-hmm. on there. And then, of course, when you recognize books that you know you're going to enjoy, a new friend. but you haven't had a chance to read yeah. yet. I'm surprised every year. I mean, I think I know. I'm always like sitting down and I'm like, it's going to be these 10 books, and then it's going to be these five books, and this one's going to win, and I'm wrong every single time. <laughs> but it's like the surprise is the best part. Right. It's like, you know, every year, you know, 50 books from our long list come into your life, and they're your new pals, uh-huh. and they're like a part of you. And yeah. it's just like the fiction list, I couldn't have predicted it if I tried. I'm obsessed with everything that I've read so far. I'm so excited for people to read the things that they didn't think they wanted to read, because mm. that's kind of the joy of all 25 of these books, is right. like there's something for everyone to pick up that you haven't seen or you haven't heard of. And it's like, it's going to be good because people worked so hard to write them, to identify them. And that is the thing. November 14th, of course, they will pick, you will, Mm -hmm. the judges will pick a winner. Mm -hmm. But for these, these five in each category are just stellar. So congratulations, of course, to all of the winners. Let's give them a round of applause. Absolutely. This is good news for everybody. It is good news for everybody. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and helping us make this announcement. Thanks for loving books. We, we do, books. and we, we stand you. you, and we stand you. <laughs> More AM to DM in just a moment. <laughs> Costa tweeted, Cry Havoc, I have just finished Daniel Jose Older's Dactyl Hill Squad. Fun, exciting social justice story with dinosaurs. Okay, if that recommendation alone doesn't have you sold, Daniel Jose Older, the New York Times bestselling author of this book, Dactyl Hill Squad, joins me now. Thank you so much for coming on, Daniel. It's so great to be here. I'm very excited to be here. Okay, so for those of our readers who have not heard of your work and this book, which I have right here, give us a TLDR of what the book is about. TLDR, the dinosaurs never went extinct, so it's 1863, we're in New York City, it's during the Civil War, the draft riots are about to pop off and there's dinosaurs running through the streets. Um, We meet Magdalene Roca, who is an orphan at the Colored Orphan Asylum, which was a real place, and she's out at a Shakespeare play with her friends when she realizes she can communicate with dinosaurs. Ooh, that's so exciting. <laughs> like many books. Yeah, love it. So obviously this book has uh, these young adult themes like with children as the stars, yep. dinosaurs, very cool, but it's also tackling a lot of really big issues and social justice issues. Yeah. So how do you go about tackling these heavy topics for a younger audience? I mean, I think you go through story. It's similar with whatever audience you're talking to, you're always telling a great story first. And as you do that, as you're building this world around them, you're honest about the world. And I think if you're honest about the world, and kids know when you're telling the truth, right? Kids will tell you immediately (laughs) if they sense some BS. Um, So you're telling the truth about the world, and with that comes some of the difficult things that are true in this world. Yeah, you tweeted earlier this year that there's a character in your book that speaks in Shakespeare quotes, correctly? (laughs) Yes. I think a lot of times people say, oh, kids won't understand that. They won't be interested in that. But what you were saying in your tweet was, kids got this. They can understand these heavy topics. They can understand this rich artwork. Why do you think people underestimate children's literature like that? I think there's two underestimations that are happening there, right? Because people also take Shakespeare and make him out to be sort of this like high up, you know, like, oh, no one, you know, can reach him except the academics. And like Shakespeare was a writer of the people and people have always loved Shakespeare, you know, regular people, academic, all kinds of people. And that's what's so great and long lasting about him. But absolutely kids, um, you know, have very 
deep understandings of the world. They don't always have the language yet to tell adults that, um, or they, they put it in their own language, and so adults don't translate it correctly. Um, but kids are going through it. Kids are aware of what's happening around them. Um, they're often in really difficult situations. And I think as writers, as people in the literary world, we have to honor that and respect that and speak to that, because that's the role of literature, right? To prepare them, to arm them for this world, because it's a hard world. Yeah, and I think kids are thinking about these social justice issues, especially in today's world. Absolutely. Okay, one of our producers, Rebecca, found a really fun photo that we wanted to share with you on Twitter. It's from Tatiana Figueroa. She shared this photo and she said, this is what Danielle Jose Older has done to my grandma, who said, Abuelas <laughs> don't like young adult fiction. So you can see there's an abuela there reading picture. your book. So what do you think it is about young adult books that do make them so accessible to everyone? Um, I think it's that, you know, we tell a good story, like I said, and I think we tackle lots of difficult things and people just want to read lots of things about the world, right? People, there's an idea in, in publishing, there's been an idea that folks only want to read about themselves. And that's a lie. It's not true. You know, I go to schools in Oklahoma in very white places often, um, and it's white schools, and they're so excited to read a book about an Afro-Cuban girl, you know, about kids of color in New York City, and they can't wait to get their hands on it. You know, and I think we just perpetuate this lie over and over that people just want to read these books that are just these very single-minded characters, and that's not it. Yeah, I think kids are, in many ways, so much more open to reading stories from other people they haven't Absolutely. seen than adults. That's the power of literature, right? Exactly. There. They get to see a world, you know, I could understand totally why a kid in Oklahoma would mm -hmm. want to read about a kid in New York City. That mm -hmm. sounds cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the second book in the series comes out May 14th, 2019. Yes. Can you give us a little preview of what's coming next? Well, I can tell you that, so the first book takes place all in New York City. The characters end up in Brooklyn in some of these early African-American autonomous communities like Weeksville and um, Crow Hill which becomes Dactyl Hill, right, um, in this world. But in book two, they end up down south in the middle of the, the crux of the Civil War. So they're in what was actually a real battle, the Battle of Chickamauga. Um, and later they end up in New Orleans. And there's a lot of excitement, and the ante is upped in every way. I love that you're, I love your books because they take this fantasy element, but like you said, you're citing real battles that happened, yes. real places that yes. existed. So it's like giving kids a little spoonful of sugar, that right. history lesson, right, right. that culture lesson with <laughs> all this other fun and stuff. And in the back of every book, there is a historical note that explains there were no dinosaurs during the Civil War in bold letters and also goes in depth about all the different characters that you meet, who was real, who was inspired by someone real, who was totally made up. That whole thing. So it's actually a really good teaching resource as well. Well, I'm definitely going to give this book to my nephews, one of whom was on the show the other week, so they can definitely oh, read it so they can learn a little terrific. bit more. Daniel, thank you so much for joining my me. My pleasure. Daniel, Dactyl Hill Squad is out now and is available everywhere books are sold. Check it out. More AMCM is up next. I'm Chantal Rochelle, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with the cast of Riverdale, KJ Appa, Lily Reinhart, Luke Perry, and Machen Amick. Good morning, Good morning. Aww, How are you? So y'all just did New York Comic Con. How was it? You did. It was oh, fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about it? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh. I got to talk to him for a few minutes. That's top That's notch. exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah that, that's the ultimate encounter there. <laughs> so, season enjoyed, three. Yeah. Well, who did you enjoy? I, know, I enjoyed our panel uh, at Madison Square Garden. Oh. Yeah. That was pretty good. My fans got to right see there. the first uh, 10 minutes. Oh, did they? Yeah. What was the reaction like? Oh, it was good. Really good. Oh, yeah. awesome. So, season three is here. Yeah. And last season, we were finally revealed who the Black Hood was. So, what was the cast reaction when you all saw who it was at the table read? 
it was surprising that you know it was a Cooper yes. family member. I think it was kind of just like I'm sure. Well, I was like frustrated because I'm. He was in the house the whole time, the whole time. almost the whole time, <laughs> yes. right under everyone's nose. nose. Um, but yeah, it was. I don't think any of us really expected it to actually be Hal because yeah. we were like, mm, that's too obvious, right? Yeah. Like it wouldn't be her we dad. We thought it was like a red hair. Like it, at certain points, it kind of felt like it might be leading there, and then it was like. No, that's too much. That's too obvious. It's too yeah. obvious, too right? Obvious. And then it was, and, and we're like, was, okay. Okay. We'll You're like, hey, keep it in the family. Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. So there are tons of crazy and wild fan theories this season and throughout the entire seasons. I mean, fans come up with all kinds of plot twists. What's the craziest theory you've heard so far? I feel like we're always asked that question. I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know I, yeah, crazy I don't, fan I don't, theories. I don't hear many of the fan theories. I don't do any social, so I, yeah. There I, was I, some, like... It, is Alice like Cooper? It. Did you? I saw. No, I saw that. That, that, they that thought. I know that was that was interesting. Yeah. I immediately started working out more mm-hmm. because I was like, huh, okay, <laughs> yeah. I look like a middle-aged man. Yeah. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Yeah. Well, fans are super, super put, put on a plot twist this last season when they found out Alice and FP have a love child. Mm-hmm. I mean, are we going to find out more about that this season? I think so. I What's hope a love child? so. Oh, like it's a, a secret child. child out of wedlock. Yes. You know, yeah. oh. a little secret thing on the side. Okay. Yeah, a little fling action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we'll find out more in this season. Yeah, I mean, you know, Chick, who was played by Hart Denton, had said that Charles actually died mm-hmm. in his presence. But I don't Charles know if I believe being it. Charles the love child. Bl- Charles yeah. Cooper, well, wouldn't have been Charles Smith, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I don't know if I believe him, and so I'm hoping that he's still alive out there and we can visit that that other Cooper child. Yeah, we can count on Alice getting to the bottom of it. Yeah. He's gonna find out. Yeah. Super excited about that. Mm-hmm. And speaking of new changes in Riverdale, Hermione Lodge is now the new mayor. Sorry to say Fred Andrews did not make it. That's why it's important to vote right. people. So all right, we tell us. another election coming up. Yes, it's coming up. It's okay, it's okay. okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. okay. We still had election results. <laughs> so state of politics. I know, right? Clearly the Electoral <laughs> College got in the way of that yeah, one. Sure but all right. So what can we expect this season now that Hermione is the new mayor of Riverdale? Well, she's clearly uh, an incompetent criminal in office, and uh, we have a few. Not bitter at all. Uh, yeah, it's one of those kind of things, but it's not going to be good. I mean, she is not looking to uh, do the best things for Riverdale. I think she's looking to do the best things for Hermione Lodge. She's got her own agenda. Is Veronica going to have to choose a side this season? That's a freaky family. I don't think there is a side. That is three people all going for themselves. Yeah, sure yeah. That. yeah true. I think. True. Yeah. They're like, they could be on Game of Thrones. They're like the Lannisters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that family is all over the place. And yeah. there are a lot of crazy love triangles in this season and throughout the entire season so far. What was high school like for you guys? Was it the same thing of all these crazy high school triangles? Well, no, not really for me. I, I, was, I was working a lot when, in my last years of high school. Okay. So I was going to and from work and school. And I, I, uh, I didn't really, I had kind of no life in school. I was kind of the loner guy. You dedicated yeah. to the work. You were the loner? Not loner, but like I didn't. You had your buds, right? I never hung out with girls. Like I, I wasn't, I went to an all boys school and there were only girls in the oh last God. two years. Oh. So I remember like sitting next to girls in, the, in class for the very first time and like being able to smell them. And I was like, like Ooh, <laughs> it's crazy being, it was crazy being in class with girls for the first time. Oh my gosh. Did they smell like flowers and rainbows? Like baby they have all powder. different colored I remember, like, highlighters and gel pens. Yeah. And I was wearing, um, <clears throat> I was wearing tinted moisturizer. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. And then, I think that's actually called like su- suntan, fake suntan. Yeah, it was like fake suntan, <laughs> yeah. but it like makes you tan. For some reason, I was wearing it. Okay. I thought it was cool. You were had the curve there. And this girl fully like called me out in front of everyone in the oh, class. And no. like, what's that smell? Oh. You smell like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, my face went red. I was just. <laughs> and, and you didn't need that <laughs> tan stuff anymore. Tan. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. not good. Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> wow. I mean, the chemistry. You guys have such amazing chemistry. This cast is perfect. So tell me, what has it been like? And, and if you could play any other character besides your own, who would you choose? Kevin Keller. Mm. Mm. I like Betty. Yes. I'm happy with I mean, her. Betty was made for Yeah, me. I would oh. probably play Ethel Muggs. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm like that. I could see it's it. Hard. With oh, a little yeah. bow in your hair. Totally. Mm. Uh, I don't, Alice is so great. Like, I know. She, she has so many layers. Alice. You'd want to play Alice, wouldn't you? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I don't, I can't, I can't. Yeah, that's a good feeling, different. isn't it? When you, you, you're playing the character that yeah. you want to play. Yeah. Playing the one that you like the best. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, speaking of characters, since we have two generations of Riverdale natives here, we want to play a fun game of Millennial versus Generation X. Uh-oh. So we're going to have Lily and KJ. Cool. And Mage and Luke. And I'm going to read you all six questions. So three each. So you can depend <clears> on your teammate here. <throat> but the best out of three wins. Are you ready? Sharing Do we just water. call it out if we know it? Yes. So you're gonna. So you can all work together. So okay. if you know it, I'm going to read it to you. And you're going to answer the question. So, so you can work with your teammates. So I'm going to go back and forth this way. Okay. And when you get it right, you get a ding. And if you get it wrong, you're going to hear an unfortunate Oh, we're actually going to hear that? Yeah. Cool. So millennials, you're up first. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Go like this. You ready? That's your ready mode. <laughs> okay. In which teen movie did all the main characters have the same name? Oh, Heather's. Yes. Oh. Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. okay. Generation X. Are you ready? All right. Which socialite made the phrase "That's hot" popular? Who are you asking me? Kardashian. You? A Kardashian. Can I steal the answer? Can, do I have to say no? Is am I not in the right area? Raise it in the form of a question. That's hot. Wrong show. Wow. We'll take it. Go. Hot. That's hot. Socialite. That's hot. Yes, she's a socialite. She's. Oh, you got it. Yeah. So oh. many hints. You got it. You got it. You got it. All right. There were no hints. <laughs> All right, I can't tell them apart. Stop. All right, All right millennials, you're up next. In which film did the main character is Bond in Saturday Detention? Oh, Breakfast Club. Oh. I was gonna say. Right. <laughs> no, you good. Okay. All right, Generation X. <laughs> yep. You're up next. And which teen film do the main characters wear pink on Wednesdays? Mean Girls. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Two for two. Mm-hmm. We're on a roll. Mm-hmm. All right, millennials. Two of them. Yeah. Which iconic hospital drama did George Clooney star in? Star in? Mm-hmm. It's a medical drama. Oh. Is it a TV show? It's a TV show. When was it? Long time ago. Yeah, yeah, early 90s. <laughs> Long time ago. Early 90s. <clears throat> Not, yeah. still it? Yeah. Not general yeah. hospital, right? Still uh, yeah. Can we steal it? it? Yeah. I, I could yeah. steal <laughs> you see that guy? I said ER. Oh, did you? Yeah. Hey, well, yeah, he said ER. Oh, well, you got it. Okay, well, you got it. All right. Got it. All right. All right. I said nope. general. I didn't hear it, but hey, we'll give it. We'll give it to you. We'll yeah, give it to you. All right. Generation X. Last question. Which Spice Girl left the group first? Like in real life? Um. In the group. Um. Um. Who's the spicy one? The spicy <laughs> one? I, I, I'm gonna throw out a guess. Was it Mel B? Uh, no, not quite. Uh, Still, if you want. 
You got it. You got Lily. Oh, okay. All Total guess. Well, I think it's safe to say that all generations are good at uh, the, the only opposite. spice that I know is Old Spice. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> Old Spice. Girl. <laughs> all <laughs> of that joke. That was hilarious. Well, guys, congratulations on season three. I cannot wait to tune in. It's so, so good. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for coming. All right, y'all. Season three of Riverdale premieres tonight on The CW. Make sure you tune in and stay tuned for my AM to DM. friend of our show, Beth Newell, just pumped breast milk while scrunched into the two feet of conference room not visible through the window like the proud feminist I am. Well, that's certainly something a lot of women can relate to. And joining me now is someone who is trying to make it easier for breastfeeding women at work, Stephanie Condup, the founder and CEO of Leche Lounge. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I am so interested and excited to share your startup. So tell us a little bit about Leche Lounge. Why did you decide to start it? And I know it's from a personal story of yours, right? Yes, so Leche Lounge is my second child. It's now my middle child. But um, after having my daughter, I was committed to breastfeeding, I think a lot to just keep the mom guilt off because I had to go back to work. I had all of these obligations. And um, I never really thought about where I would pump milk at or how often I'd have to. And I started to um, pump in a room and a janitor walked in on me. And it was one of those moments that you're just thinking, is this the best that we can do for new moms? What are we doing? What's the solution? There's so many moments like that as women yeah. where you realize the system is not adequate. And yeah. I, I imagine in that moment you were panicked, mm -hmm. like kind of humiliated, like there's, there's there's all these emotions you feel where then you sit back and you realize, wait, I'm not the problem. Correct. The system is the problem. I mean, the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. mandated that employers mm -hmm. have a space for women to pump, but a lot of places are still falling so mm -hmm. short. Why do you think that is? So I'm a public policy person and I was uh, went to law school and so initially I was just angry and I thought like, how do I litigate this problem for women? And then I started to do research and realized that um, we could maybe have a scalable solution. So whenever I would talk to employers who were not providing accommodations, they would say it's too expensive, it's too hard to build out. And so I decided to go into manufacturing instead of the legal route and to actually manufacture a solution that was tangible. Um, without really fair leave policies, you know, in our country, you're going to continue to have this issue. Breastfeeding rates are increasing, which means employers' obligation is only increasing. Litigation's up 800% this decade. Wow. Okay, so you decided to manufacture a solution. Yes. So tell us what your company provides for women. So basically, we can come into any space, no construction, no build out, and put together a really nice space within less than two hours for women to pump. So thousands of women have used our solution. You walk in, you shut the door, you lock it, you sit down, you have a fan, it's ventilated, a nice chair, a good shelf, we can add refrigeration. And so there's no excuse for large companies or small companies or public spaces. I went to a Madonna concert and five women in leather pants were fighting over an outlet. I mean, like we have an issue in our community where we tell women you need to breastfeed or we shame them and then we don't provide them with any options of private places to go. It's just a disconnect between public policy, family and the communities we live in. One of the things your story made me think of is the fact that you know, a lot of women are, are taught from a young age implicitly to feel shame over their bodily mm -hmm. functions, and many yeah. men f 
shame women or are embarrassed. I don't want to talk about women's mm -hmm. bodily functions. Yes. Most venture capitalists are men. Mm -hmm. So how do you pitch this idea to men? And especially, unfortunately, a lot of CEOs of companies, people who make these type of decisions to have your product in their office are men. What has that been like, trying to push this product into offices? Well, just generally, less than 2% of venture capital goes to female founders. Um, women successfully have incredible companies like Jenny Fly, so Jen Hyman, and they have programs that they've actually started to focus on women entrepreneurs like myself. We've changed our entire strategy to where we look at the working mother's top 100 list to find companies that would be more likely to adapt, or female-led companies. But one of our biggest clients is the United States Air Force, and you're right, they call it lactoriums, they don't know what to call it, they just kind of like, you start talking about breastfeeding and they shy away. And so it is hard to talk about this issue, but it's not a woman's issue, it's a family issue. I mean, these women are pumping for their children, for their families. And so whenever we can take and just talk about the compliance issue, or even just the humanity of these women's choice, then we start to see more change. What are some of the responses you've gotten that have kind of blown you away and how archaic they are? Um, I mean, a lot of people ask me what my husband thinks about the idea, or my parents must be very proud of me. <laughs> and I think about a lot of men that go into pitches. I've had someone tell me I needed to wear heels to pitches instead of flats. Um, and so at some point you just stop pitching to traditional VCs, you start looking for angel investors, and you start looking at VCs like Built by Girls that are featured and looking for strong female entrepreneurs that are solving actual problems, which that's what Leche Lounge is doing. One of the other interesting aspects of your company is you founded your company in Oklahoma. All of your employees are members of the Cherokee Nation, and mm -hmm. you've done litigation with the Cherokee Nation, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. And all of your manufacturing is done in Oklahoma. So you're kind of shying away from the traditional, you know, coastal elite founding yeah. of a company. You're doing it in America's heartland. Why was that important for you? So I grew up in northeastern Oklahoma. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, my mother's Cherokee, my grandmother's Cherokee. I worked in economic development for our tribe and realized that we needed to provide good quality jobs. Manufacturing jobs in Oklahoma is a, a good quality of life. And so for me, it was a very intentional approach to keep it in Oklahoma. We're able to ship to the east and west coast easily. Um, we have opportunities with government contracting as a native woman-owned company. And so that's been really at the core of our business is how do we create jobs? How do we create different communities and quality of life through our product? So say there's a woman watching who doesn't have an adequate breastfeeding space in her workplace. What is one thing you could recommend for her to fight for this right in her space? So we, if you go to our website, lechelounge.com, we even have a place that you can like anonymously tell us about a place and we'll contact them for you. So if you don't feel comfortable going to a um, supervisor or someone else, another is there are great fact sheets on the Department of Labor's website that you can just kind of slip to your boss or employer. And then just having that conversation as early as possible. I think a lot of people will make accommodation and it may be the conference room and it may be a storage space. But until this is more visible and more people are feeling willing to talk about it, the accommodation is going to be hard to secure for women. And that's what we do is I feel like we're advocating for the rights of women and children and family. Every time we contact an employer and say, hey, you're out of compliance, we have a solution. What would you like to do to make this work. So great. Thank you so much for Thank speaking up for all of these women, Stephanie, and yeah. for joining us today. Up next, we're going to respond to some of your tweets. All right, so
Sylvia, we did it. We made it through the day. It's Wednesday. Halfway through the week, we got it. Hump day, yep, we're through. I'm excited for the second half of this week. Me too. <laughs> and it was so great talking to Stephanie. I love talking about these issues of women in the workplace, and I would definitely recommend everyone check out her company. You know, it's kind of sad that we haven't really figured this out yet, but it's good. It's that, crazy. You know, I feel like once women are in charge, maybe we'll we'll get some more stuff done. Right. I agree. <laughs> um, so in response to Azalea Banks versus Lana Del Rey, a.k.a. my new favorite beef, Nini <laughs> Martinez said, Azalea will be Kanye's VP. Do not put that into the universe. Dear is, God, please. No. no. I no. it's like I guess it's like what what's the worst? Like what possibly worse can happen? That is worse. That is worse than the worst thing that can happen. They just need to just take they can go just take them put them over here. <laughs> well, we asked you if you are excited <laughs> for the Zola Twitter story movie and Mrs. Smith says I literally just burst into applause when you guys announced it. All right, so it seems like the ANCDM fam is really psyched for this movie. I feel like we should live tweet it from the theater. It's only right. That, that's <laughs> We definitely need to have like everyone involved in this movie on the show once they're doing a press Please. tour. Oh, okay, and in response to our tweet of the day about PDFs, you all said, shout out to all the overqualified millennials working as office administrators when they should be VPs. A sweet. Thank you for that. It's true. Yeah, I'm not going to call out anyone, <laughs> but I've definitely had jobs where I had to go over people's shoulders and be like, okay, file, save, okay, exit out, okay, send an email. Like, I've come had to on, teach people. people how to post on Instagram back in the day, do an yeah. Insta story, all these things. Yes. Yeah. You know, just give us a bonus for it. That's all we're asking. <laughs> well, thank you so much to all of our fabulous guests today. Sara Hirji, Alana Bennett, Tarini Party, Lisa Lucas, KJ Appa, Lily Reinhardt, Luke Perry, Machen Amick, Chantal Rochelle, Daniel Jose Older, and phew, Stephanie Conduff. So many people, it's so great. Woo, what a, you made it through that. <laughs> Stephanie will be hosting with Hayes Brown tomorrow. Love Hayes. Bye, see you guys. Next time. Bye, guys.